0: Transgeneral is recorded on stolen land that rightfully belongs to the walla Medical people, who have called this land home for countless generations and were displaced by European genocide. So-called Australia is a colonial settlement. The sovereignty of this land was never ceded. Reparations have been paltry and disgustingly tokenistic, and this is, was, and always will be Aboriginal land. I pay my respects to the elders of the walla Medical people, past, present, and emerging. I want to dive right in, but first, some content warnings. In this episode, a few slurs that are used against people like me are said, and the following topics are talked about in detail and at length. Sexual assault, emotional abuse, gaslighting, manipulation, suicide, and turf rhetoric. So with that aside, let's get back to it. Hi everyone, I'm your host Charles, welcome back to Transgeneral. Should I just, I want to prattle out my labels. I want to prattle out my labels. It sounds fun. So I'm your host, Charles, like I just said, and I claim the right to autonomously self-identify as a stone butch, an anarchist, an indigenous rights activist, a trans liberationist, genderqueer, a he-she, anti-fascist, anti-authoritarian, and a tender soul. Please, if the stuff you hear in this is too much to bear, then just take a break. I don't want you to listen to this if it hurts and also I just I don't know I find it touching when I've like written about my life and about how I felt pain and people then come back to me and tell them how like how empathetically they felt about it I just it's it's really nice it's like you've shared something with someone like you gave them a part of your soul and they accepted it into theirs and like I guess that's kind of how empathy works, isn't it? It's just sort of like, I am feeling this experience. It's really beautiful. I like it. Also, I just realised just how, like, obviously in post-production this is, my voice gets so fucking mellowed out when I'm high, and, like, I really needed some weed after that episode. Oh, boy. Um, You're in for a treat. So the first half is me talking about um, how I'm, you know... I, I think that modern queer spaces, are, they've, they've literally been like the sucking dry of queer identity. Um, and then the second half is me relating that to trauma that I experienced in the, around the queer space, I suppose, that like has just stuck with me and it's gonna stick with me forever. Please enjoy. Hey, we're going to get back to it. I'm going to just jump you right in at me, like talking very passionately about Stone Butch Blues. What a fucking nerd, right? <laughs> God, I love Leslie. All right, bye everyone. It took me over a month to read Stone Butch Blues, and that book spoke such truth about my trauma and was a roadmap to feeling like a real and whole person for the first time in my memory. I put off reading it until I was in an emotionally okay enough headspace to turn and stab the huge traumas that were lurking right behind me this whole time. Many of you may have noticed that the content warnings for the previous episode did not match the content. I had to cut my descriptions of abuse because it was too much for the return of Transgeneral and more importantly because it was too much for me to say those things without losing my composure on that given day. My emotions were running far too high and this is actually a good example of me knowing my limits for once. I'm sure it's kind of obvious now, by now, that I'm reading off a script for a lot of this. I'm trying writing episodes. It's, I really want to say some really important things. And like, while I feel like me just monologuing and letting my emotions run out of my mouth is a good way to talk about things that I just, I need to inject that kind of emotion into. I want to impart some factual stuff. Um, When I'm talking about my own history, sometimes I might write it down because it'll be easier to talk about it without just getting emotional about it. And also in this case today, I've written down a lot of thoughts that I have about how queerness has been liberalized and co-opted and made into this sort of defanged identity that's acceptable to society. Today, we're going to be talking with the benefit of hindsight about how I experienced finding community for the first time in University of Wollongong's queer space. In doing so, we will be talking about all the things wrong with such spaces and how people should not attend such liberal spaces because they defang the queer movement and create complacent sellouts who trade the solidarity with marginalised queer people for tokenistic acknowledgement by neoliberal society. I do not pretend to have been anything but a neoliberal sellout myself and even further right-wing before I found these spaces. At the end of the day, I was raised by a business owner who truly thought he was a good man yet solved his problems with the threat of violence from both himself and the state, and violence directly from himself when he deemed me to be too out of line. In this episode, I'm going to talk about things that are not readily accepted truths by so-called medical experts. The idea that people who have suffered trauma should be allowed to teach how to overcome it is considered radical and dangerous by many academics, because academia is a harmful institution built on authority and said authority is built on many untruths due to the white, cis, hetero, patriarchal, able-bodied and minded and so-called objective prescriptivism that has always existed in such institutions. Science did not cleanse academia of bigotry. Instead it galvanized academia against social change. Medical science is a perfect example of this as are the social sciences. Trans people are not invited to talk about why we need our body changed, or why society needs to change for us to feel truly okay, but instead we are pathologized and told we need to fit a trans medicalist narrative, or as I like to say, a true scum narrative, to even access the care we need. So not only can we not tell people why we are the way we are, but also, by their hand, we are required to lie about who we are in order to access the life-saving treatments we require. True scum is a label applied derisively to the trans medicalist community, people who believe that all there is to being trans exists in a medical context. This belief itself hinges on some pretty big beliefs. Belief in the binary is one of them, as is the explicit disbelief in the validity of non-binary identities. I have no pity for people who seek to pathologize the beautiful variations of humanity. Whether or not they are, quote, correct, unquote, does not matter. Science is a recent construction on the timescale of human existence and humans lived happier lives without it. People often try to counterpoint this by saying we live much longer lives now or that there would have been a higher chance of me dying in childhood, but length is not happiness and a short and happy life is still a happy one. This isn't to say I don't think science should continue to exist to provide medicine and longevity and to help those of us who need it to fill the gaps in this world that wasn't made for many of us, these reasons are literally most of what I think science should be used for. Industry should be scaled down to the point where it only serves to help people in only the most direct of manners, and it should be done so in a way that doesn't destroy or occupy indigenous lands. The claim that capitalism helps people is something I not only reject wholly, but I find truly fucked up in its reasoning. Capitalism is a system that has intentionally created poverty so that it can force supposedly free-willed humans to work under the duress of knowing they will starve and lose their access to housing and medical care if they do not. The workers of the world are slaves and upwards class mobility is a carrot on a stick. Capitalism kills people and it does so by design. I want to talk now about academia. Academia is truly a root of evil and I proclaim this as someone whose first experience of a so-called queer space was at an academic institution. The neoliberalization of the space was truly all-consuming. To my knowledge, I met only a single other anarchist there, but at the time, neither of us were actually at the stage where we even knew why we should agitate for change or even how to do so. In that space, I met so many toxic people. I do not say this to cast dispersions. I was perhaps the most toxic of them all at that stage of my life, And some of the trauma that they imparted onto me just delved me even further into a truly paranoid sense of how others see me. There was a man there who was a member of the Liberal National Party Youth Organization at the university. The LNP are a regressive party beholden to capitalists and who seek to destroy the affordances made to us queer people by the neoliberal state due to pressure from progressivism. I talk about him first because nobody in that space enjoyed his presence, except the non-binary people and women he preyed on. I was told by someone exactly what he was doing behind the scenes, keeping her at arm's length and promising emotional commitments that never came. I thought this may have merely been an artifact of the dysfunction of human relationships until I was told something by someone else whom I called a friend, but who I was never a true friend to. This person found themselves under the searing spotlight of my obsession with being loved and being given physical affection of any form. They told me almost exactly the same story as the woman I mentioned earlier. It was then that I was truly enlightened. This man was a manipulator, and I am truly ashamed to say that I took real consideration into trying to use his tactics to get people to love me the way these two broken, sweet individuals loved him. It is lucky, then, that I did not have the patience to become someone so calculatedly vicious in my extraction of emotional comfort and validation from others." There were others in this space who were not welcomed by many. And the issue was that this was not a space of healing. It was open to everyone who identified with some subset of the definition of queer, as well as many who had betrayed queerness in their subsuming into society. I was one of these people. I did not have the social awareness at the time to know, but the beauty of memory is that one day you'll learn something new and a tidal wave of all the times you've done wrong and your lack of that truth will come crashing down and threaten to destroy your sanity as you spiral, catastrophize and obsess over how you hurt people and what you would truly give to let them know the depths of your sorrow at the pain you caused. While also knowing full well that much of your sorrow is self-pity and a desire for these people you hurt to potentially one day come to see you as a good person. I know that I am still driven by much shame, and that while this podcast is not intended to be an apology, it most certainly will be one, because I cannot extricate from the fabric of my soul this deep regret and a longing for having been better, so much better, so very long ago. I naively hope that one day I will cast off these shackles of my mind, but that day is not yet here, and I feel like telling my story may help, but it won't fix me. I will always be sorry. True queer spaces should not allow just anyone. They should not force healing, but they should exile members who refuse to heal and who make the space a less welcoming place for the more niche queer identities. In a true queer space, the trauma that drives individuals to be monsters should be uncovered and brought to the light, and they should be given resources on how to start healing. One day I may write a thesis on how we build such spaces. But at this time, I merely have the two spaces I've built myself as examples, and both of these are less than a year old. In these spaces, bad actors have joined. People who insist that the binary is real, who think the lesbians using he, him pronouns as some kind of joke or aberration, who insist that non-binary and lesbian are incompatible terms. These people are really easy to deal with and I made short work of banning them from my spaces along with a full description of why they are wrong, resources they can read on the lived experiences of people who are harmed by their rhetoric and a message stating that if they turn this harm around, they would be welcome back. The stickier questions usually arise around people who acknowledge critiques of their harmful behavior in the moment, only to later regress and put up a fight every time you try to correct them. With these people, I employ a strikes system we had one member of our space that would occasionally spout turf rhetoric, though being a trans woman herself, I considered it somewhat of a retribution for the pain I caused Chelsea when I made jokes about turf language. I had to deal with someone far too much like how I had been, in a situation where I was forced to give patience. She did not view herself as a real butch because she was assigned male at birth. And every time I helped her out of the spiral of the insistence that there was no way she could be anything but a traumatized man, invading women's spaces, I also made sure in that moment to remind her that repeating turf rhetoric serves to bolster these voices in her own mind. Every time, she would agree with me. She would promise to do better, and we would have these conversations publicly, so I expected her to be kept accountable simply by the visibility of her promises but I was naive, and she was not being honest when she committed this to me. A week or two later, we would be once again having an argument because she saw fit to jovially describe a trans experience in the language of people who think we are aberrations. I won't give many examples, but one that truly sickened me was when she described a neo-vagina as a, quote, gaping wound, unquote. I want to take this moment to clarify to everyone what the difference is between turf rhetoric and regular slurs. I use slurs jovial in myself, especially when in groups of people similar to me. But when I call myself a fag, for example, I am taking a sentiment that so drastically contrasts with my worldview and the worldview of those near me that it could only be jovial. Turf rhetoric, on the other hand, works inside queer spaces. Just enough lesbians are turfs that it chills trans people who were assigned male to their core to know that such people could be waiting to simply attack us when the time is right. I'll tell you now of a story of assault that another butch who was assigned male at birth experienced. Then afterwards, I'll tell you a similar one of my own. She was at a party and in a group chatting to people. Someone referred to her with she, her pronouns, and then immediately afterwards, a woman standing next to her said she with an incredulous tone. She followed this up by grabbing this butcher's crotch and saying she, flatly and with contempt in her voice to punctuate her point. Nobody in that circle said anything, and this poor sweet butch could do nothing but freeze. Turf rhetoric is harmful within the community because it serves to alienate trans people, and it serves to renormalize these prescriptive medical ideas of what it is to be trans. When I am called a faggot in the street, I do not question anything about how I am seen by the people who ostensibly are my community, I am merely reminded of my struggle against the world at large. However, when someone uses the term trans-identified male to refer to trans people who were assigned male at birth, I am reminded that there are people who think that the way my body was when I was born is something that is more important than who I am as a person, the communities I exist within, my experience of the world as a queer dyke, and my own sense of how I view myself. These are tactics of covert abuse parading as, quote, medical science, unquote. Turfs lament that they no longer have such a strong ally in modern science, and I'll admit it's nice to see science finally moving in the right direction and away from simply describing the world as it is viewed by the oppressors while pretending to be objective about it. Now that we know why this harms, here's my story of assault. I was with my then-partner and we were coming home to her house. The door was opened by the girlfriend of one of her housemates. She was drunk, quite obviously drunk. She put the backwards baseball cap she was wearing on my head and in that moment of confusion she lifted my shirt and bra, exposing my underdeveloped breasts. I was so simply unprepared for such a situation. As an autistic person and as someone with CPTSD, I've often been mistreated by people and simply accepted it as okay or as an okay thing to do, because I had no reference frame for what healthy interactions look like. In that moment, I simply played along. I froze and allowed her to do whatever it was she was doing. She proceeded to explain to me how my body was different from hers at a skeletal level and how it was never going to be like hers. I took it at face value and accepted that she was merely telling me an interesting fact, I suppose. I was so good at just shrugging off trauma that I put away all of these feelings of violation I had felt in that moment. I told myself that the reason she did that was that we were somehow close. I'd never met her before, but this is what would allow my mind to go on. So I viewed her with interest, and later at a party, I kissed her. The way I'm describing my emotions right now might sound very unrelatable to you. If you do not have autism, that is. A common autistic trait is something called alexithymia. And the definition for that is an inability to identify or describe emotions being experienced by yourself or others. I did not know what I was feeling, so instead I would intellectualize reasonings over the top. I can only thank my ex-partner for actually reporting the abuse, or I may have never realized that I didn't deserve to have my body disrespected, violated, and described like that. I didn't deserve to be exposed in front of multiple people I did not know and who I did not want to see my body. Kissing her at that party actually came after it was reported, but I downplayed it. I so badly understood my own emotions that I said I was fine, because I was made of trauma. It was merely a pebble in my shoe compared to the spikes driven through my heel. I only realised that I wanted to kiss her for the totally wrong reasons because of how badly my assault affected my ex-partner. I only realised much later that it affected me deeply. From 2015 to probably around 2017, I would usually sleep with my arms defensively crossed over my chest. And this isn't in the script, but if I'm being honest, sometimes I still do if I have a bad day. The other night I went out to a lesbian event and it was really nice and fun. I introduced myself as Charles to people and it's like my my deepest, darkest fears that it would make people see me as a man were wrong. And I felt so good and free to be a non-binary lesbian and to be able to exist on my terms. But then after the party, I was just sitting at the bus stop and this creepy old man walks past and I had my shirt unbuttoned because I forgot to button it up when I walked outside. And he asked if he could touch my stomach. And I just felt sick. I immediately put my hand on my knife and I was extremely ready to start something, but I left before I got arrested. I That night, I not only slept with my hands, with my arms crossed over my breasts, I did it just to self-soothe while sitting awake. While I sought community at the University of Wollongong Queer Space, a lot of trauma was imparted unto me. I dated someone who lived in a million dollar apartment that her parents bought her and she was not keen on my anti-capitalist rhetoric. So she would start arguments and bait me into using indelicate words. She would then threaten to post these words on the Queer Space Facebook page. It upsets me to know that she was the person there when I had the realization that I was and am trans after the gender fuck party that was thrown by the queer space, a party where I truly had fun, but I found out later that I hurt someone by saying what I was told was a sleazy request to make out. I had no memory of what I had said and therein lay another issue. I also had no memory of after I got back to my date mate's house. When I awoke in the morning, I was naked in her bed. The condom in my wallet was still in my wallet and she was walking around the apartment cleaning things. I usually sleep naked so I thought nothing of it but later that day after I professed to not knowing what happened once we entered her apartment she told me we had had unprotected sex last night and she needed the morning after pill. I gave her some money for it but she asked me not to come with her. Later she told me she threw it up. I implored her to get another but she told me it would be fine and it's her body and she would do what she wanted. She used the ostensible resulting pregnancy as a weapon. Disagreements with her now not only ended with her threatening to destroy my friendships, but also with her threatening to keep the fetus. I was so excited to start hormones and I was so distressed now that I knew how far my body was from how I needed it to be that I desperately ordered hormones on the internet. When I told her about this, expecting her to be happy, she blackmailed me into cancelling the order, threatening to tell Chelsea. I didn't know how Chelsea would react and so... Because I wanted Chelsea to think I was cool and to be my friend, I did cancel the order. She told me this was for my own good, and I was going to hurt myself if she hadn't done it. Sometimes she would bring up the prospect of keeping the fetus as simply a good idea. In spite of her suicidality and dependence on alcohol, in spite of my objections and aversions to the very concept of fatherhood, she would ignore me. What if this baby cures cancer, she would say. She would go into a loop where she would come back to saying that over and over again. She could always tell how upset it would make me, and she was either neutral or delighted in my suffering, depending on the day and how much this was about her or about me. Once, lying in bed next to her while we were both drunk, I told her I was too stressed to talk about the pregnancy this time, that her constant drinking and yet still insistence that she carried a term were really, truly upsetting me. She said fine and told me to talk about my trans identity revelations. I told her I was too stressed already to talk about that either. She yelled at me to get out of her house. It was such a fast change that I thought she was joking and refused. She told me she would call the police if I did not. I wrenched her phone from her hand by force. I placed it on the other side of the room and got dressed. I don't remember anything she said to me in this time, but she did say many things. I was far too drunk to drive so my plan was to sit on my scooter in the dead of winter for as many hours as it took to be able to drive home. As I was putting on my jacket, retrieving my helmet and walking past her bedroom to leave, she called out to come back to bed. I did go back to bed. She played the patron saint. I was always wrong and she was always right and we were both strong and stubborn personalities due to lifetimes of much trauma. I started behaving without regard for my own life or safety. I would ride my scooter home drunk at 3 a.m. when I could no longer stand being in her presence. She would tell Chelsea these things right in front of me who would disapprove, but I was forbidden from saying the things she did. And I just had to watch people find me more disappointing without any context. At her birthday party, I got blackout drunk and refused to go home. She played the victim and told everyone the bare minimum details to make me the villain, without any possible reasons given why I might be acting this way. She had me believing what I had always believed. I am the villain, and though others may be unkind to me, that unkindness was deserved. To her credit, I shouldn't have gotten blackout drunk at her birthday party. I shouldn't have even fucking gone, but... I didn't I didn't know what to do, I didn't know how to exist. Over the course of our time together, she'd had two suicide attempts that I can point back to as my start of belief in a non-interventionist stance over suicide. That belief may have started because she abused me for daring to interrupt her attempts, but it now comes from a belief in bodily autonomy and the right to end pain you feel you cannot stand but what is real if we do not take seriously the pain of someone's mind and their right to opt out of having to endure the perpetual absurd cruelty of being a human being? After her suicide attempts, I drifted away far enough that she told me she was going to terminate the pregnancy. She pleaded that I'd be there. She made it such a big deal that I can still remember the conversations quite clearly, and I was happy to be there and support her making the decision that was right for us both. One day, I get a text that simply reads... It's done. I was both hopeful that she meant what I thought she meant and also wary and confused because this was so incongruous with the narrative I'd just been told the week prior. She convinced me by telling me the details of how they gave her pills to take home and how it had induced an abortion over a toilet. I was so relieved for it to be over and was more than happy to pay the 300 or so dollars for half of the procedure. I've told this story many times to people close to me and something that never escapes anyone is how she should not have been taken at her word. She never showed me a pregnancy test. She never showed me the receipt for the abortion. She never showed me any evidence that she was pregnant. To this day, I do not know if I consented, for the lack of a better term, to sex while we were both extremely drunk and somehow thought it unnecessary to protect against my greatest fear in the world, perhaps having been convinced by her to be unnecessary, or if I was raped in my stupor or if she just made the whole thing up to hurt me because she truly did believe I deserved to be hurt. But what I do want to point out is what happened after I stopped making appearances at the queer space, due to the reputation I was gathering as a harmful and toxic person, both by my own hand and by the rumors my ex spread about me. After I left, she found another victim and I don't know what type of abusive drama unfolded, but I do know that it was spoken about in hushed tones. Maybe she was eventually banned from the queer space, but the point I'm making is that we can build spaces in which people are removed before they perpetuate the bulk of the harm they possibly could. Further, we don't need to simply outcast our comrades. We can give them tools of healing as well as guiding hands. That's the end of the scripted section. I guess I'll just vamp a little here. I was not a good person when I came to the queer space at the University of Wollongong. I, in many ways, I was trying my best, but in many other ways, I was content to be a bad actor. I was content to be the villain. I still had this internalised idea from all of my shame brought on me by my mother. And we're going to talk about that in the next episode. Actually, episode three was meant to be episode two, but I'm just, I'm still refining it. I'm still adding so much stuff to it. I shouldn't have written two episodes at once, honestly. That was kind of on me but they were originally the one episode and it just completely spiraled spiraled out of control because the next episode is called I am my monster and the next episode talks about all of the trauma that I have received myself and a lot of the trauma that I've paid forward to others I, I want to tell this story because there are a lot of people out there like me who were raised in extremely abusive situations and didn't know how to stop being such a person. And we met people who would validate our abusiveness and who would be abusive back to us. And so we were caught in these vicious cycles. And Steven Universe, the movie, is perhaps the most important movie I have ever seen. The main character, the, the, the antagonist, Spinell. She is such an amazing embodiment of BPD style, viciousness and reactions to trauma. She, I don't want to add, I don't want to put too many spoilers here, but if you haven't seen Steven Universe, the movie and you're listening to my podcast and you're kind of like missing out. So I'm going to put, I'm going to spoil it. I'm going to spoil it. She brings an injector, that is basically designed to kill the entire world and by the end of the movie she is given her ability to start redemption it was such an important tale that i went and got a tattoo of her gem on my chest and I just, felt, I just felt so much lighter to know that she existed, and it was probably not until after the first 10 times that I could watch that movie without crying. Telling tales about redeemable or redeemed villains is very important. It's, there are people like me out there who just need it. And hey, if you're one of those people, we've got hard roads ahead of us, we need not to see ourselves as the villains we once thought ourselves, but as people who were, you know, we weren't necessarily trying our best, but we were doing what we knew. And if you listen to the next episode, I guess a lot more will be made clear. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. Our intro music is a bespoke piece called Don't Be Shit, created by my dear friend Cassie Morgan. Cassie's SoundCloud can be found in the show notes. Today's outro will be Baby, I'm an Anarchist by Against Me. And in this cruel, cruel world that is crumbling so easily merely under the weight of a pandemic, remember now more than ever, don't be shit.